Uh, do you remember the walkathons or not? Uh, that was all. <laughs> that was one of the more frenetic periods of radio. Uh, I also found a program describing a swimming meet. All the while, I was dressed in a swimming suit, sitting up on a five-meter diving board. All part of the business of getting people to look at you, you see. But uh, these things are are still going on. They're always being they're always being developed. And in the in the eventual turn of this, it is called the gimmick. Uh, I did a record show one time, and this is this is actually true. I did a record show one time from the inside of a lion's one of these uh, lion tamer things, you know, the center ring in a circus. The guy had about 11 lions, five or six tigers, and 18 or 19 black panthers. And I did a record show from that particular situation. All the way he was doing his thing. Now, what did that contribute to the listening of the program? I don't know. Unless it might have been the suspense of suddenly being cut off the air, we now return you to your studio due to programs control over. Oh, there was another thing that I described. I can recall describing a man who would freeze himself in a block of ice. And every day I would do a 15-minute program telling how he was coming along, and I would interview him. What possible listener interest I could have had, I don't know. But I can recall doing it very vaguely. It was there. That thing keeps keeps uh, cropping up, and as long as we're doing a program of this type tonight, we might as well discuss it again. About two years ago, on the continent, there was held a go-slow race, which is completely the opposite of a go-fast race. In other words, they were attempting to see which automobile or what car, what conveyance, automotive conveyance, could move from the starting line to the finish line in the longest possible time without stopping without stalling and always being under continuous motion. Now, that is a very interesting kind of race because uh, engineering-wise and viewing it from the eyes of an automotive engineer particularly, it is much more difficult, you know, to get an automobile so finely tuned, so beautifully machined, that it will move at an extremely slow speed. Uh, Getting high speeds is not a very difficult problem, really. Uh, many automobiles, it might interest you to know that 100 miles an hour was a common speed for many stock sports cars before 1915. It is not difficult, you see, to get high speeds. However, slow speeds are difficult to obtain. And the automobile that won this race was able to complete a course of about 750 yards in something like 10 hours and 41 minutes. I know that his... RPM was measured by the officials. They were so astounded that they measured the movement of the wheel and they found that it was going at about one-third of an RPM, one-third of a revolution per minute. Now, uh, to enlarge upon this, a few weeks ago, and unfortunately I haven't had a chance to answer it yet, a youngster wrote to me from Drexel and he said, my professor of mechanics spent three class periods proving to us on the blackboard that this couldn't be true. He'd heard about it too. And he wanted to know... How come? What, what's the story? Well, I didn't invent the race. I didn't invent the figures. I had nothing to do with it. I was quoting them. And if you're interested in looking them up for yourself, you can find it in the October 1952 issue of Austin. 
which is a very famous automotive magazine that comes out of Britain. If you'd be interested in reading that, there it is. They have many different records, and one of them I think you might be interested in hearing. In the 1930s, Gene Sarazen was a very famous rapper. Somebody got the idea that a, an automobile could, could uh, outspeed a golf ball that was driven by a top flight car. Now, most people would think that is a ridiculous thing. And so would I, if I heard it, if I heard it called without knowing the figures. Here's the way they did it. For anyone interested in cars, you'll be fascinated with this story. Gene Grinch, who is a who is a prolific and a constant golfer, refused to believe this thing until I showed him the actual figures. Uh, Gene Sarazen was going to be the man. He was chosen for the test. He was the British Open champion at the time. They selected a very fine British automobile capable of speeds over 120 miles an hour, a stock automobile, by the way, and they were all set to run the race. So here's the way it was done. Sarazen drove, and just as he drove, the car flashed past. In other words, the car went past the T just as Sarazen hit the barrel. Well, the barrel traveled at a speed of about 155 miles an hour, roughly, which was faster than the car. Well, at the, at the very apex, if you've ever seen a fine golfer hit a ball, you know he drives a ball low, he drives it long and straight. He never drives it up in the air. He has the trajectory worked out pat so that he will get the maximum distance without too much slowing up of the ball due to uh, headway, due to friction with air. So nevertheless, the golf ball led for quite a bit of the course. However, at about the 185-yard mark, the car caught up with it. And by the time the ball hit, the car had passed the eventual stopping place, or the, the striking place of the ball, four-tenths of a second ahead of the ball. So it traveled something like 230 yards in 4.1 seconds. The ball did it in 4.5 seconds. So the automobile outraced the car, or rather outraced the, the golf ball. Then again, they did another interesting race. They raced on a closed circuit. They raced another car against an airplane, and the car took it hands down, primarily because the automobile was able to corner whereas the aircraft was not able to corner at all with this car. Now, that might, uh, might interest you, too. A lot of people have big, enormous automobiles. They have, a, they have tremendous cars that have uh, horsepowers. Their engines probably will turn up at the maximum of 200 horsepower. And they wonder why those automobiles would be inadequate against a good road racing sports car. Well, it's all in cornering, you see. It's all in cornering, it is in handling ability, and it is in safety at high speeds. Let's hear another car, let us say like an MG, that can take a difficult corner at about 55 to 60 miles an hour that one of our larger, tremendously powered cars couldn't take at 30. And so perhaps on the straightaway, the man might beat him with his big car. But on a closed track or on a road race, the little car will take it every time. Oh yes, uh, if you want to look up that if you want to look up that source again, it is Austin, which is a magazine you can find. It is Austin of October 1952. Look way in the back, and you'll find odd records that have been created. Getting back briefly to radio, radio caused a great revolution in the world of entertainment in the 1920s. 
And at the same time, many people catapulted to fame, became tremendously successful, both commercially and certainly uh, personality-wise, but I will say not artistically, became tremendously successful with absolutely no talent at all. And if they did have any talent, it was only a talent of brashness rather than an actual creative talent. And for example, many of the great announcers of the 1920s couldn't even get an audition in today's big-time radio station. They just couldn't do it. Uh, for one thing, they got where they were because people were fascinated with just the idea of hearing something out of the air. And they would listen to these people, and they began to have tremendous stature. And there was an air of mystery about radio that no longer exists. Now, they would give mysterious, mysterious airs to all these people on the air. They were called Knights of the Airwaves and all kinds of ridiculous things. And they were made very, very uh, romantic, even though romance itself was a purely fallacious thing in connection with radio. And all the announcers of one big radio station, for example, began to be very mysterious characters when none of them used names. They all picked fictitious initials. For example, one man would call himself A.J., or another man would say, uh, thank you, good night, this is F.D. speaking. And they began to have a very legendary quality about them. One of them was, uh, well, speaking of the legendary quality, Milton Cross, back in those days, working in a New York radio station, used to use the designation A.J. I believe it was A.J. that he used. Uh, there was a newscaster... He used to work with a newscaster, for example, who never signed his name. He got to be very mysterious among a lot of people. He got to be very, very famous because he simply would sign QED. It says QED reporting good night. And that's all he would say. And people were always interested. Who is QED? Uh, what does he look like? And he would broadcast from a studio that wouldn't allow uh, listeners. It wouldn't allow anyone to see him. And he would be spirited out along with insurance men people who cleaned the floor, and several elevator operators, cleverly disguised as a non-radio type person. These come and these go. A few of the bits of romance cling, just a few of them. Oh, yes. Don't tell me. I was there. <laughs> Uh, we have a we have a note from the Free Library of Philadelphia to the effect that the charity has been under preparation and certainly under display for the last few weeks. Your home in 1953 is still at the Free Library of Philadelphia, located here in Philadelphia at Logan Square. Hundreds of books, periodicals, and government documents that will give you many new ideas for your home in 1953. It will be there until Monday. That's this coming Monday, January the 26th, at Logan Square. We also have another note, this time from the Crusade for Freedom people. I've been very interested in this organization because they are using radio as a really prime means of communication. Now they are the practice of and the formers of the Radio Free Europe group and the Radio Free Asia. Fighting communism in the Far East, also fighting communism behind the European Iron Curtain. If you would like to really do something in this fight against communism, send your contribution because it is all it is all backed and completely backed by private people, private individuals who have pooled their money, their resources, and their time. If you would like to become part of it, send your contribution to the Crusade for Freedom in care of your local postmaster. That's the Crusade for Freedom, 
in care of your local postmaster. There is another thing that should be discussed and probably won't be discussed until somebody really does write a definitive history of this business, although there have been several attempted. And that is the mystery that existed in the early days of radio that no longer does. And one of the great reasons, probably the most important reason for this breakdown of the mysterious radio. You know, in those days, there were... One man, for example, rose to a tremendous, a tremendous degree of popularity, not because he was really a great singer, but because he was billed as the masked tenor. He was billed as the masked tenor. He was very, very mysterious. And people were always asking, who is the masked tenor? Now, radio could create a wonderful world that really didn't exist in those days because people were much more naive about their radio performers and about the radio business itself. Uh, I can remember such things as a man who uh, would always bill himself as, well, we've had several masked tenors, you know, going through this business from time to time. And people who would start the rumor that they were a famous opera star that had fallen into disfavor due to uh, familial difficulties. And they were now forced to be on the radio under an assumed name. People would listen to them for that very reason alone. Not because of what they did or but because of the feeling of mystery and being part of the mystery itself. This is KYW, your Westinghouse station in Philadelphia. We have recordings. You know what that's called in the, in the field of basic psychology? That's the aha experience. That's what they call it. The experience of suddenly discovering something that you know or learn. The aha experience. Well, we have, we have a good example of that. Now, people sit out here and they wonder where this information comes. It only comes from, from really, and this is very honest about it, it only comes from memory. Well, you have a memory, too, you see. You have perceived these things. But the trick is to learn, and it does take a long period of work, I, I have to admit that, is to learn how to bring these memories back. Now, a moment ago, I mentioned a radio program to four people sitting in front of the stand here. And they said, oh, yes, I remember that. Suddenly, they were amazed that they recalled this thing. Do you remember Colton Myers Kindergarten, uh, which was a very popular radio program in the 1930s? Uh, do you remember the Barbasol Man? Well, we can make a few other uh, like, like pullings out of the hat, but it, it isn't necessary. But you see, you do remember them. You do recall them. And for that reason, the aha experience is there and evident. Now, the aha experience has two facets. One of them is the discovery of something new, the sudden realization of an idea that someone is trying to put across, or it might be the bringing back of an old, old impression or a very ancient image. I would like to know what happened to old Colton Meyer. Do you remember him with his kindergarten? I can recall after having musical memory, he would say, after the music comes shushing. And uh, they would go on again into the workings of that particular kindergarten. Uh, what were some of the other children's shows of that? Although that wasn't really too much of a children's show. It was sort of part way. It was floating in between. Do you recall a program that I used to, in fact, most people in radio still talk about it as a classic. Do you recall a program that used to be done on Sunday afternoons, the star of which was three people, really. Groucho Marx, Basil Rathbone, and Madeline Carroll. A very peculiar combination. Well, it was called The Circle. You might remember it. It was sponsored by a big dairy company. 
The reason that this particular program is considered a classic among radio people is that this was about the last example of the really freewheeling comic being allowed his head on a radio program. They would start out with a script, and this is really the truth. It is not press agentry because of what happened. They would start out with a script. Everything was under control, you see. Basil would be on one side of the mic, and Madeline would be on the other. The orchestra would be there, and Groucho would be in the middle. Uh, about five minutes, they would stick on the script, and Groucho would see his opening. And by the time the program was 20 minutes old, there was nothing but pandemonium in the studio. No one outside, no one listening to the radio could understand what was going on. Uh, and, and it would wind up almost every Sunday just exactly that way. And many of the things that Groucho used on that program were things that really, well, I, 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 how shall we put it? Uh, let us tell the story of uh, Minnie the Moocher. There's a long story behind Minnie the Moocher, and Groucho was not one to, really not one to hesitate telling the story. And so the place would wind up, it would be broken up after about 15 minutes of this. Eventually, the sponsor said, that's enough. He says, I am not going to sponsor a half-hour program in which people shriek for half an hour and somebody keeps making little comments that no one else can hear. This was a really freewheeling program. This was a really freewheeling comic in his own media. Uncle Fletcher, uh, wherever radio men get together and uh, spend any time at all talking about the old days in radio, there is one program that almost invariably comes up, and that is the old Vic and Sade program. Now, that was a wonderful show. It had many different levels of humor, and probably the most interesting level was the very gentle, satiric commentary on a middle-class family. Now, let us take the case of Victor Gook. Now, Victor Gook was Vic of Vic and Say. He was the father of the family. Now, Victor Gook was chief accountant of, if I remember, the Consolidated Kitchenware Corporation, and he was chief accountant of plant number 14. Uh, he was also a member of the Sacred Stars of the Milky Way, which was the lodge. He was the grand Big Dipper of the Sacred Stars of the Milky Way, and, uh... I can recall endless, endless conversations that Vic would have with Lodge brothers over the telephone, reminding them that their dues were behind. The endless conversations when a Lodge brother would get into trouble, he would immediately get in touch uh, with Victor Gook, the great Big Dipper, and he would call then for volume seven of the sacred rules and regulations of the sacred stars of the Milky Way. And then in the reading of this particular Latin passage, he would always read the Latin passage that was read to brothers in distress. It was a passage that was very secret, and it always wound up in hoc agricola comp. And the brother, of course, felt much better after. It was a sort of a, a psychosomatic thing. Uh, in addition to that, I can remember Mr. Bullard. Do you recall Mr. Bullard? Mr. Bullard, there, there is a wonderful name for a boss. I have never heard a better name for a boss-type person than Mr. Bullard. Uh, Mr. Bullard, of course, was the general superintendent of Plant 14 of the Consolidated Kitchenware Company. Well, the, uh, the trouble with that program, of course, was a trouble that many of them find. It was really too good. 
It was too good in many ways. It wasn't the sort of thing that would appeal to someone who is working while the program is on. You had to listen to it. It was the sort of program that required constant listening. And so if someone was pushing a vacuum cleaner, or if someone was sitting down getting ready to write a letter to Easton Dumpke, they were in no mood to be achieved about Mr. Bullard. I can remember the time when Dick Brooks were asked by the members to organize a parade. Every year they had a big parade. Dick, of course, was the the Grand Big Dipper. He wore long robes. He also wore a sword. He had a tremendous plumed hat. This was all part of the last ritual. Uh, the day of the parade dawned, but not one, not a single one of the members could appear for the parade. The only one who appeared was Vic himself. And Vic paraded down the main street with a tremendous sign that had the sacred founder of the sacred stars of the Milky Way, a tremendous sign with the portrait of the founder. His eyes lit up alternately. Uh, it was powered by a small dry cell battery. I remember the flag seven feet underground, only in a treasonous, sacrilegious sense. And so the satire was there. As the sacred stars, plant number 14, and there was Sadie too. Sadie and her constant, her constant patronage of Yamilton's department store. Now, I believe they used to have sales about every three days of wash rags. And then there was the movie too. A Gloria Golden was inevitably appearing at the Bijou in Hearts of Flame. Not to mention the constant reading of Third Lieutenant Stanley and Lady Montague's latest adventures. Uh, because radio has a very fascinating and, in some cases, even colorful history. And yet, uh, it isn't talked about too often. In fact, I can't recall a program that has discussed the early days of radio at all in years. There used to be several. Let's talk about the early band remotes. Uh, we made a casual reference to Count Basie in the very early stages of our program, around 11.30 or something like that. Basie was a band that indirectly owed its success to radio. Basie had organized a group. You see, what happened to Basie has happened to many musicians. Uh, Basie started out in the 1920s in Red Bank, New Jersey. He played around Red Bank for a while. Never did much, really. Good piano player, of course. And he finally got a chance to travel with a with a group, a pip band that traveled with a vaudeville trip. And they started out across the country. They started west. And each succeeding date was a drier date as far as income was concerned. They finally arrived at Kansas City. Uh, the outfit broke up, and Basie was stuck in the middle of the Midwest. No money, no job, and no way to get back out to the East Coast. So he wrestled around, picked himself up a job in a small theater. You see, back in those days, the transition from from silent movies to sound was not complete. There were a few sound pictures, but few of them. And so the pit pianist or organist was still a big man. And he used to accompany motion pictures without background on You know, follow the bouncing ball, sing happy birthday all together in B-flat. And he continued to do that. At that time, there was a man who was very successful in Kansas City musical circles, Benny Moten. Uh, Moten had a group that he called his Kansas City Stompers. And Basie began to gig around with that band. When I say gig around, picking up odd jobs here and there. And he picked up jobs with Moten's group. Well, gradually, he became more and more important in the group, and eventually he took it over, and it became his own band. And he was, incidentally, 
this is probably uh, not surprising to many, he was one of the first people in the very beginnings of the swing era. Uh, his band did swing. Now, whether or not you're a jazz fan or a swing fan makes no difference. We're simply stating historical facts. And his band began to swing. They played at local places around Kansas City, and he got an air shot. He was doing a remote from a dance hall on a local radio station, and a few people heard it. One of the people who heard it was a musician who was traveling out to Chicago. At that time, Benny Goodman was very successful. And behind Benny Goodman was a man named John Hammond, or at least along with Goodman, an aficionado from way back. And the, uh, this traveling musician, or it might have been Hammond himself, I think it might have been Hammond, he pulled Benny Goodman out and said, listen, you've got to hear this band. This band really is fine. Well, there was no way for them to hear this local radio station in Chicago. There was too much interference. And so they got a hold of a battery set somewhere. They went out in the middle of a vacant lot and put up an antenna, and sure enough, they heard the Kansas City station. And Goodman was knocked out by the band of Basie. So he got in touch with his agent, who got in touch with Basie, and that was the beginning of the big Count Basie band. Now, there were many bands of that period that did get their start via radio. Uh, in those days, the most valuable thing a band could have was what they called a remote line. And they were always fishing for them. And many very, very mediocre bands, certainly Basie's was not that, but I mean really mediocre bands, very bad bands in some cases, became famous simply because they were the only thing that people heard. And so the man was broadcasting from the Fignes and Hotel. People heard him on their radio, and he was automatically great. Why? Well, because he sounded better than any record player they'd ever heard. He sounded good. They could hear people applauding. They could hear people shuffling. It was alive. And the man immediately became a very big name. Now, those bands were successful until about 1934 or 1935. And they began to drop off like flies when people became much, much more uh, sophisticated as far as music was concerned. They'd heard a lot of things by now. And these people wondered all of a sudden why their popularity went down. Well, that was a pretty obvious thing. And that was also true of many of the early comedians. It was also true of many of the big radio programs of the late 20s and early 30s. People suddenly said, what are we listening to? And they actually listened for the first time. Yes, you're right. Somebody brought up uh, one of the first of the bands that created a tremendous splash for itself due to radio alone. And they had a nationwide listening audience. And that was the old Coon Saunders band. Now, the Coon Saunders band was a composite. That is, it had two leaders, really. Carlton Coon, the late Carlton Coon, I might add, and Joe Saunders, who later billed himself as the old left-hander. They started a group that maybe some of you remember called the Kansas City Nighthawks. Well, the Kansas City Nighthawks was a mythical club. People liked to believe that they were part of a great mythical ballroom scene or part of a great mythical organization. And in those days, the Kansas City Nighthawks was one of the largest of all of them. And they would send membership cards uh, to people who listened to the program, and you could become a Kansas City Nighthawk. You could carry a little membership card, and that was a great promotional thing, and at the same time, it uh, gave people a feeling of being part of this uh, new organization, this new thing, radio. And to carry this story a little further, a man came out to the town room not more than three or four months ago, 
who had, in mint condition, a genuine Kansas City Nighthawk membership card that was dated March 1925. Uh, he had the card, and he had sent for it himself, and he recalled the Kansas City Nighthawk group very well. Now, Joe Sanders, to my knowledge, is still traveling around the Midwest with a band. He is still playing what they call regional dates. Now, the regional date man is the man who might be based, let's say, in Philadelphia, and he plays... Uh, dates in Asbury Park, or he might play dates in uh, in Atlantic City. He might go as far as Red Bank. Maybe he plays in Harrisburg. That is a regional band. A band that is a non-regional band is a, a local band. Is of course a local band. And then there is the third category, which of course is the band that travels from one end of the country to the other. But in those days, a radio band was really that. It was built, established, and completely, completely based upon the appeal of the radio audience. Another one of them was Isham Jones. You might remember Isham Jones' band. Well, Isham Jones' band, to a great degree, was a radio band. There have been many other radio bands, but those two come to mind as probably the most successful of the period. Carlton Cohn, Joe Sanders, Kansas City Nighthawks. As I used to hear, uh, and uh, in fact, in certain instances, whistlers would travel with bands just like uh, just like uh, singers do today. And there's another program that was a great popular success back in those days, and that is the warbling canary type program. Uh, you right, might remember programs that endlessly went on with a sort of saccharine organ uh, accompanied by 15, <laughs> 15 obviously vitamin D hungry canaries. Vitamin D hungry because they were all transcribed and you could hear that downward flutter in their note because of a poor cutting job. Uh, but uh, it might interest you to know that uh, that program is still going around on records. Uh, this is KYW, your Westinghouse station in Philadelphia. We have recordings. Gene Shepard at the town room of the Penn Sheraton Hotel. We shall be here until 2 o'clock this morning. Uh, wonderful thing, these badgers. And even a few of the buttons, too, make interesting looking. About this particular organization, I will talk about it again. Uh, many years ago in Chicago, at the Chicago Theater, and also from time to time at the Oriental Theater, there appeared an organization under the jurisdiction of a man named Paul Ash. Paul Ash was a local, a local hero. He was sort of a local Paul Whiteman in Chicago. And I can remember just as clearly as if it were yesterday, uh, watching this band in operation. Uh, they would sit on the stage in a sort of a tiered formation, you know, uh, on a sort of a bleacher formation where one was sitting above the other. It was a big outfit. They probably had 25 men in the band, maybe even 30. But the time that I remember most clearly, these men were wearing orange, black, and white striped blazers. Uh, they were also wearing flat skimmers, straw hats. Now, this sounds like something right out of a burlesque of the 1920s today, but this is exactly what they wore. They also wore wide, flat flannel trousers. You might remember them. And they all wore bow ties. And I can recall seven banjo men standing up in the last row and playing the middle chorus of Betty Coet. And both pianos, he was very famous because he used twin pianos. Well, somewhere along the line, Paul Ash and his stage reviews disappeared. My memory grew dimmer and dimmer, but I couldn't call them. Until finally the time came, about seven or eight months ago, I suddenly thought to myself, what about Paul Ash? 
But then it began to bother me. Maybe I had, in... somewhere along the line, I had invented this picture. No one else remembered Paul Ash. I would talk to old musicians who were in, do you remember Paul Ash? And they would look at me suspiciously. No one ever remembered Paul Ash. Last Sunday, watching a program, one of the last citadels of mediocrity, the man turned to the screen and he said, there is hardly a man alive today who remembers Paul Ash. And suddenly a new world opened up before me. I was one with the man who years ago I used to admire and respect because he remembered the days when the Civil War veteran was as plentiful as today's, uh, well, American legionnaire. Now, I was now an old-timer. And the man looked right out at me and said, hardly a man alive remembers Paul Ash. I remember Paul Ash, clearly and distinctly. I also remember Betty Coed. I remember the seven banjos. I remember the orange, black, and white striped blazers. I don't know whether I approve of it or not, but I do, you see. I remember. There is, uh, there is a great illusion, the illusion of uh, immortality that exists in every generation. Uh, when you observe these stars, the, well, we just had a man here tonight say that. He didn't think about it, I'm sure. He didn't think about it. If he had thought, he would realize the ridiculousness of that statement. It is impossible for you or for me to know just what sort of things are going to be successful or popular or even called creative artistic uh, works 30 years from now. If we did know, we ourselves would be creating them or at least heading towards that particular goal. We would be creative artists ourselves, which of course we're not. However, it is interesting to note that feeling of immort immortality, that feeling of foreverness that is part of every generation. Now, the man playing second banjo in Paul Ash's band felt that the Paul Ash band would be there forever. And I'm sure that the man playing second alto in Stan Kenton's band feels that Stan Kenton shall go on forever. I'm sure that the man who was playing in Woody Herman's Thundering Herd of 1943 and 44 felt that anything as fine as this certainly was going to go on But that, too, goes on forever, you say. It's a wonderful feeling. It's a feeling that they continue to prepare in small cakes and they sell it in one form or another, sometimes with coupons attached. Of course, you remember Joe Penner, undoubtedly. Now, do you recall Joe Penner? And his want to buy a duck? Well, I knew a man. In fact, I still do know him. I haven't seen him in years, though. A man who was one of the Joe Penner scriptwriters. He used to write part of that script. It's hard to believe that it was a script, but nevertheless, he used to write part of the script that came out of Hollywood back in those days. Uh, this was also parallel. This was a contemporary of the major Bose Amateur Hour. It was also a contemporary, although later, of Baron Munchausen. You remember Jack Pearl and Baron Munchausen? This was about the music goes round and round period of American culture. Uh, this was also at the same time that the Pot of Gold show was beginning to grow, was beginning to be very, very important. Now, the Pot of Gold program that might interest you, back in those days, racked up some hoopers and ratings that have never yet been equaled by any commercial show. 
tremendous ratings that were just fabulous. Uh, the $1,000 grant award is a grant award that today is given away by probably 500 stations every half hour. And so it will, and so it shall. And somewhere along the line, this vast herd, this tremendous crowd, continues to move ever so slowly toward uh, what most of them like to consider progress, or do you prefer the bigger and better, and certainly heavier pyramids. Yes, that was, uh, that was a very, how many of you, I, I bet there aren't very many of you who remember Janine. Uh, she used to use that, just that name, Janine. Janine, I Dream of Lalock Time was her theme song. She was on several networks for a long time. And she was also, at one time, a singer with the Paul Whiteman Band. And Janine is, uh, well, uh, she's an old friend of mine, and this is not name-dropping, but it's an interesting thing to note how these various families grow in a sort of uh, vine-like way. Uh, her uncle was Stoopnagel of the old team of Colonel Stoopnagel and Bud. Uh, Stoopnagel died, you know, about a year or two ago. A truly funny man, Colonel Stoopnagel. He was famous particularly for his wacky inventions... He was also famous for his spoonerisms. You might remember the spoonerisms that Colonel Stoopnagel used to... By the way, I pulled a spoonerism the other day on my Saturday Symphony. I described something as an interesting salute follow. And it went right on. I didn't say, <laughs> didn't say a word. It hung in midair. A, a tremendous, a tremendous spoonerism. And what can you do? I mean, after it's out, it is out. You just compound the felony by talking about it, by making an issue. Sure, I really did, do, uh, really, really did that. A, uh, a salute follow. But uh, Colonel Stupnagel, Janine, and what was the other girl who used to sing with the Paul Whiteman band? Very fine pianist, too, by the way. Uh, she is now married to one of the outstanding sports announcers here in this country. I'll think of it before I go off. I'll probably think of it five minutes after I go off the air. Uh... But nevertheless, these, uh, these people, most of them are still around. Most of them are still active in various fields. Uh, the street singer, you might remember Arthur Tracy, the street singer. His theme song was Marta, Rambling Rose of the Wildwood. And he would come on with this extremely uh, sort of pseudo-Italian romantic type tenor. And he became very, very popular uh, during the mid-periods mid of Radiohead's development. He went over to England and is now and was and has been for many years a very big success in that area. We could go on and on and on, but uh, these things and so many... You, you can't overdo a thing like this. Uh, if you do overdo it, it loses its quality, it loses its value, and even loses what little nostalgic pitch there is left to it. I can still recall, though, that theme song almost note for note, as well as I can recall the opening bars of the, of the theme song that was employed by... Colton Meyer and his famous kindergarten. And then I can recall the theme song of Jack Armstrong, the all-American boy. Hudson High, we're for you. We'll keep the flag waving high. Uh, champion ever challenging and so on, all the way into the far fastnesses again of the night. And then who among us remembers the air adventures of Jimmy Allen? Who among us remembers that particular program? With the sound of the Jenny OX-5, pocketa, pocketa, pocketa in the background. Our 14-year-old hero would throw his Jenny off into the twilight to battle the smugglers south of the Rio Grande. But then on and on and on that too can go. 
But who remembers, who doesn't? And in fact, who cares, really? That was about the time of the, oh, I would say roughly the King Kong period in American culture. Uh, this was just after the decline of the Tom Swift series, just as the rise of the, well, the outdoor chums was eminent. Uh, perhaps, uh, I wonder if there is a man among us tonight who recalls a series of books called Tom Slade, Eagle Scout. John, do you recall that one? Do you recall Tom Slade, Eagle Scout? Uh, do you recall Roy Blakely, a series of books about the Boy Scouts, and a sidekick, Pee Wee Harris? And if I recall, the author was a man named Percy Keith Fitzhugh. Uh, Percy Keith was the name of the man who wrote the books. I'll never forget the time when arriving with shining eyes and grasping claws in front of the Christmas tree, I found my usual quota of outdoor chums in the White Mountains, my usual quota of Ted Scott air adventures, my usual quota of Roy Blakely novels, and among them was a thing called Don Quixote. I puzzled over that for about a year and a half and gave it up. I couldn't possibly... <laughs> I can hear many, many a, a semester three English major during the same... Of course, Cervantes is not English. But nevertheless, they touch roughly upon the period of the windmill. They touch roughly upon the period of poor old Pancho and the rest of them. Casting aside this uh, small anchor, we perceived that there was nothing to do but turn to the land of the bugle, and so we did. the story of the little fir tree. That was a heartbreaker. That was a tearjerker, if I can recall. The poor little match girl. I also recall the silver skates and the girl at the bright. But I just as well recall the Bobsy twins, too. Uh, I always was impressed that they always, after a hard day of bobsled riding, uh, they would come in for a cup of hot chocolate. But to me, hot chocolate, I never heard really of hot chocolate. It was always cocoa around my house. Jazzy jokes, puffy patter, climbing cliches, world travel, anniversaries, weddings, and occasional back that are special. Now we have a huge store of Orphan Annie Mystery Circle buttons available for you collectors with the secret matching code. And if you would like to become a member, be sure to enroll just as soon as you can. Time is running short. Now Gene Shepherd, records, transcription, and there shall be a Saturday night. Just 
conclude the broadcast day from station KYW, Philadelphia.